everyone. On today's show, we have an incredible guest. His name's Walter Haydock. He's currently the CEO of StackAware, a cyber risk communications platform. Uh, Walter's an author. He's a consultant. He's a ghostwriter in the cyberspace. He's also a former U.S. Marine, a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, also graduated from Harvard Business School. And uh, you, honestly, volumes could be and probably should be written about what Robert's doing for the cyber community. And I'm just delighted to have you on the show today, Robert. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Walter. <laughs> so we were going to have Robert, but Walter, I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. So the reason that... Um, that I got in touch with Walter was because he has a really exciting new course that he is putting together with Robert Wood, uh, who is currently the CISO at CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, also the co-founder of the Soft Side of Cyber. And uh, Walter and Robert together are kind of are putting together uh, a program that is going to help us kind of super boost our productivity with AI without boosting our blood pressure, you know, in <laughs> having to deal with cyber risks. So, uh, Walter, could you tell us a little bit about that? What's going on with this? Yeah, sure. So as everyone who's been paying attention to technology in the past six or so months has, no has noticed, there have been a lot of advancements in AI. And obviously this has been the accumulation, uh, the culmination, excuse me, of a lot of development that's been going on for decades, but it's really kind of breaking through into the mainstream with the release of ChatGPT, the ability to use natural language to interact with, with AI models is, is a game changer. And we're going to see this, you know, really rapidly expand in terms of usage throughout uh, every type of organization. So with any new technology, there are always risks involved. I mean, if uh, if we didn't want any cyber risk, then we would just stop using technology. We'd shut everything down. We'd go back to the Stone Age. Boom, no cybersecurity risk. So obviously, that's not something we can do, and it's not something we want to do. Unfortunately, yeah. I've seen with the generative AI in particular, a lot of security people have been um, viewing it as a, you know, there's there's that quotation, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who says, you know, any form of technology sufficiently advanced enough will will appear to be magic. And, uh, you know, there's some people who are treating generative AI kind of like magic, like black magic. They don't want to touch it. They don't want to, um, you know, uh, deal with, with the risk associated. And I think that there is a middle path. There is a way to use these technologies effectively, uh, securely, while also complying with data privacy regulations and existing compliance frameworks. And that's that's what we're jumping into in this course. That's what we're gonna cover. Oh man, that sounds so awesome. Um, we kind of just jumped right into what you're doing there. So uh, you have a really, interesting background walter uh really impressive background what got can you tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you got into cyber in the first place and why that was so interesting to you yeah absolutely so i started my career as a marine corps officer and i was on the the infantry and intelligence side and uh wasn't especially technical at that point but you know i i found myself 
uh, hacking together spreadsheets and, and doing all sorts of uh, kind of ad hoc ways of processing data to support ongoing operations. And you, you may or may not know this, but the military is pretty conservative when it comes to allowing new technology. So Excel was, was kind of a big deal to be able to use that. And, uh, you know, I, I continued on in government. I worked in the intelligence community and then I worked on Capitol Hill as a staffer and actually helped write some legislation with respect to data governance and privacy in the Department of Homeland Security and really developed an understanding, you know, later in life that, uh, you know, I think the, the next frontier of security would be in cyberspace and decided to really educate myself and go deep on the topic uh, when I was about almost turning 30 years old. So that's that's when I started learning how to code was when I was a uh, a full-fledged adult, and uh, that was a painful process, but I learned a ton. And while at business school, I, you know, kind of accelerated my my uh, learning development, and uh, you know, decided I wanted to go into the software world, and ended up landing a job at a pretty big software company focused on the cybersecurity aspects of a product that they were offering. It was a Internet of Things. Um, platform that obviously has a lot of cybersecurity considerations, considering it can interact with cyber physical systems. And uh, spent a couple of years there, and then I moved on to another enterprise software company that was itself it was a security vendor, and um, realized that you know I, I was facing similar problems at multiple different organizations. So. I decided that it was time to uh, go out and solve those problems myself directly by by launching my own company, and I've been documenting a lot of the journey along the way with uh, with my blog, deploying securely. Yeah, man, and it's if uh, for for anybody who is listening, if you're not following Walter Haydock on LinkedIn, uh, you're missing out. He has fantastic content, so. I want to dive into some of those problems. Oh, but first off, I got to give you a little shout because Excel, I, I feel like that's that's like one of my first loves, right? I, I wrote, you know, like I built the I built the prototype for Paramify using Excel um, and it worked awesome as long as I was the one doing it. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's great. Not great but for collaboration, but uh, no, it's good for MVPs. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Good enough. Right. Sometimes. I mean, some, I mean, I thought it was good enough and a couple other people did. Right. So um, anyway, um, Walter, tell me a little bit. You mentioned the problems that you ran into in those big organizations. And I've been reading a lot of the stuff and I'm having PTSD as I like read some of the things that you write about because kind of have a similar background in cyber. Right. So tell me a little bit about those problems. Yeah, I think at a high level, the biggest problem yeah. that I faced in a variety of organizations with customers, with with, uh, with vendors, is communicating about risk in a in a clear and concise manner. So, in in my experience, and this even goes back to my Marine Corps days, there are really only way four ways to manage risk: accept, mitigate, transfer, and avoid. And sometimes, you know, I find myself in meetings where uh, people would kind of be going down rabbit holes, um, talking about options. And it, it was really important to, to bring it back to those four 
those four pathways you can take and understand, you know, which one you're going to choose or which combination are you going to choose in a, in a given situation. And I found that the most effective way to do that is to speak quantitatively. And that's what I've tried to do with uh, not only vulnerability management, but now with, with generative AI risk, looking at how you know models will perform in certain circumstances, you know, what are the odds of uh, data loss occurring when, when using these tools and, you know, how, you can present these findings, these risk assessments in a way to, to auditors and external assessors and, and customers to make sure that they have buy-in in the process. So that's what I've been focused on. Great. Yeah. And so in your experience, you know, when you're presenting, you know, quantitative risk or quantitative uh, results or of whatever you're whatever you're trying to assess, right, from a risk perspective, do you find it, um, you say that it's easier to to get people to understand the quantitative uh, analysis versus, I don't know, more subjective analysis. Can you give us a couple examples of like where that's effective for you? Yeah, yeah, so maybe I misspoke. I, I would say that it, it's potentially not easier to understand quantitative things. And in fact, security <laughs> teams often gravitate to qualitative descriptions. They like heat maps, red, yellow, high. green, stoplights, high, medium, low, um, bands, you know, those types of things. And, you know, I just, I find myself running into a ton of resistance whenever I say, you know, I, I, I hear you, I hear you that you, you need your band of high, medium, low, or, you know, <laughs> Uh, high, high, medium, or, or critical, high, medium, low, or most critical, critical, high, medium, low. But that uh, is it's it's something of a crutch, I would say, in the security community. And you know, if you read some of the some of the material out there by Richard Searson um, and some of those folks who've done real deep dives on how uh, those qualitative communication methods can can actually lead you astray. Uh, I think that that's revealing. But um, some examples of, of quantitative risk management that you can talk about is, uh, you know, the the currency of, of risk, whether people want to admit it or not, is is dollars, because that's what businesses use to, that's how they evaluate projects, that's how they decide whether they're going to undertake a new initiative, release a new product, things of that nature. And even the government, even the, the public sector, the military, you know, it's funny, the military, you know, the, it's not the biggest sources of expenditure in our government, but it's, it's pretty close up there. Um, but, you know, the military, uh, the Department of Defense can't pass an audit, but they've got like, you know, over $800 billion in budget. Um, so, uh, but still people in the military or, or public sector will recoil against talking about risk management in, in dollar terms. But I would say, you know, if if you're telling me what we have is is not enough, then then we're going to need some some better justification for you know why we're going to spend more on certain programs and, and policies and things like that. So talking about risk in terms of dollars, I think is the most important uh, first step you can take. I've got other yeah. examples, other ways to to get there, but you know that's kind of uh, the first step of the process. I agree, right? Like that. For the most part, if you are talking about improving security, there has to be some sort of like uh, financial outcome 
um, especially when you're talking to developers, right? We really need them. We need people to implement security. I mean, um, you have, I mean, if, if you just have the GRC people implementing security, you're not going to have security. And um, it's really important that you get them incentivized and get them on your side. And so it sounds like what you're, what you're trying to say is that if you can convince them that this, this has some sort of financial impact for the organization, then it's easier to get them. It's either, it's easier to get them on your side, right? Implementing security. Yeah, certainly for, from a business leader perspective, you know, I'll give the example of if, if a chief revenue officer came into a meeting with the CEO and said, I think our revenue is going to be low this quarter. The CEO would not accept that as an answer and would say, what do you mean? How low is it going to be? Are we going to be 10% under plan, 50% under plan? And unfortunately, I think CISOs can kind of walk into a room and throw around a bunch of technical jargon and then say, you know, and this is high risk. And people will <laughs> not drill down into those statements. And I think that's yeah. unfortunate because it, uh, you know, it, 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 it leaves the business leaders not really fully understanding and, and in some cases not wanting to understand, not being interested in understanding what the magnitude of the risk is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. So you, yeah, we, we you're not going to get any budget for security unless it's tied to revenue in, in some way, at least on the commercial side, which is really kind of this whole pursuit of stickers, right? For like compliance, right? I get a SOC 2 sticker, um, I get a FedRAMP sticker. I get an ISO 27001 sticker. Um, some people say some compliance is better than no compliance. Um, I'm not really sure, though, because of the trust that is associated with, you know, getting SOC 2. So you could, certainly can kind of go through the motions and just do something. But um, I don't I don't really know what I think about it yet in total. I think you just definitely have to have some sort of... Uh, incentive to implement security. And it's a challenge I think that we'll always struggle with unless we have really great mechanisms, um, easy mechanisms uh, for implementing security. And so I think that's kind of what you're trying to do, right? With this new course, it's everybody is going to want to use AI. You can't tell them you can't use it. So when we're thinking about building a mental model for how to be thinking about AI, how to use it securely, um, I know that you'll go into the details in your course, which, um, you know, we'll have those in the show notes, right. Um, uh, when we release, you know, so that you can, you can get this course, but tell us a little bit about how to build a mental model, um, for how to think about AI and security in like the easiest way possible. Yeah, makes sense. Definitely a, a fair question. So what I would start with is. I'm actually about to release a free AI risk management uh, standard operating procedure as a uh, as a lead magnet for our course. So I'll I'll just use that model as a as a way to describe how I would assess AI risk. So first of all, I would start by looking at the the business problem you're trying to tackle, and this is something a business leader needs to answer. And and the question would be, do we need an AI tool for for this business problem to solve this uh, to solve this issue? And, you know, you better have a, a better answer than just yes. And, and if you drill down and say why, 
the answer can't be, oh, because I want a fancy AI tool and I'm hearing about it a lot on social media. So, you know, you need to clear that initial hurdle and understand what business problem you're solving rather than I just want AI. Assuming you've done that, uh, I'd say then the next step you need to look at is what sort of data is this tool going to be processing? So an obvious thing to look for is any sort of personal data. Um, you know, if you look at the the new GDPR, it's got a pretty broad definition of what personal data is. You know, a, a work email address that contains your name is is personal data according to the GDPR. So you might think that, oh, well, we're just, you know, this is just an internal tool. We're just using it to, you know, send emails internally or something like that. Well, you're actually processing personal data, as it turns out, according to the GDPR. So you'll need to understand what um, compliance, what what data privacy regimes you're going to be you're going to be touching on first before you, uh, you know, at, or as as you begin your risk assessment process, and then you're going to need to make sure you understand, you know, what sort of changes do I need to make to my operations? Do I need to update my privacy policy? What's our, um, you know, what's our method for responding to data subject access requests? If, you know, somebody says they want to purge their data from this tool, um, if we're using a third-party tool, how, do, how does the vendor address these types of things? How do we, you know, how do we extract all that data out of their um out of their systems if, you know, we get a, a, a DSAR from, from one of our customers or even from one of our own employees. So just understanding what types of data you're going to be processing with the tool is, uh, is really important. So once you've established that, you'll understand what regulatory guardrails you have in place. And uh, then you can kind of move on to the, the cybersecurity analysis. And you, you have two options here. First of all, you could say, hey, you know, we're really technically savvy and we're going to host this model ourselves. We've got homegrown code. Uh, we're going to run it in whatever environment. Um, or you can use a vendor, you can use a third party that has a hosted solution. So each of these has its own challenges. A lot of security people mm -hmm. that I've interacted with have expressed a preference for locally hosted models and uh, because they want full control over their data. And to me, that, that can be puzzling in, in, in a couple different ways. So for example, say yeah. you're running this on, you know, you're running the model on Google Collab, which is a, just a data science tool set that you can run. Uh, you can run all sorts of stuff on. And, uh, you know, I've done this in, in, in companies. Yes, you know, I can, I can delete things, um, you know, that I can control where the, where the data goes, but... Um, you know, you're probably going to have some sort of persistence for that data. Is that, uh, you know, is that sitting on Google Cloud Platform? Well, okay, now a third party has control of your data. You know, you, just because you're running the model yourself um, doesn't mean that a third party doesn't have access to your data. Now, of course, there are, you know, it's a big company and they're well-established kind of um, contracts in terms of handling that information, but you still are trusting a third party with it unless you're running like a bare metal server on, in your own data center with uh, an, an LLM on it, which you know conceivably could be appropriate for ultra sensitive use cases like militaries using it for classified information. Then I could see that happening, but um, otherwise, that that's going to be kind of a strange, uh, strange deployment model. And and also, you need to understand like, are you the best? Are you the most capable of 
evaluating or maintaining the security of this of this setup? Like, are you going to set up all the pipelines? Um, how are you going to you know deal with outages? Are you going to configure it correctly? You know, there's some data that uh, I think Gartner said that 99% of all of all cloud security misconfigurations are going to be the customer's fault by 2025. So if you're setting up all these resources, you know, think hard about how you're going to administer them from a security perspective. If you go the third party route, then you're going to be negotiating with an organization that, you know, they'll, they'll have varying degrees of security attestations. You know, if you look at OpenAI, they've got a SOC 2, Type 2, and, uh, you know, they've got an API that you can plug things into. They've got a pretty explicit data retention policy. Microsoft Azure has uh, using the same models as OpenAI, not their technology, but the uh, mm -hmm. aside from the model, they're using the Azure stack. They've got even more fine-grained controls. You can opt out of some of the monitoring uh, of the uh, of the model for for highly sensitive use cases, and uh, you can also use customer managed keys in those scenarios. So understanding exactly you know the sensitivity of the data you're dealing with, and then adjusting the controls appropriately is uh, is really critical. I'll, I'll pause there because I've been talking for a while, but I, I'm happy to continue on. No, it's great, man. I love it. Right. Um, so it sounds like, yeah, it, it really depends on uh, your organization. Right. So um, some some companies are going to say, hey, let's just use open AI because, I mean, it's really hard to keep a, people from using that. Right. <laughs> it's really hard to keep people from using a, um, uh, just all of these AI tools because they're so useful and they really do boost productivity. Right. So scripts that used to take like you know um you know i just did one the other day right um you know things that probably would have taken me you know a day or two you know to to kind of script out you can do literally you know you get you get a start on it in python like just you know in 30 minutes and you have a working script and you're getting the data you want it's just it's so incredibly useful and so um it's it's just really hard to keep people from using that. So um, you talked about we could we could kind of have an on-prem model. We could have it, you know, if you are in GCP, you're using the tools that they, you know, they give you. Um, so you have on-prem, you know, and you just have all of the uh, machine learning algorithms or the language learning uh, modules just on-prem. And then you, you have just, you know, a third party. And so what are you seeing as the viable alternatives to each? You know, so if I, if I'm a small company, right, if I'm a small company, I don't want to, I don't want to do on-prem. I want to do cloud, right? Can I, can I use that securely, right? Can I use open AI securely? Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely can. And like you pointed out, there are productivity gains to be had that are really going to be you know, irresistible for, for, for smaller organizations that don't have resources otherwise. So you're going to need to figure out a way to do it, specifically with the, with the open AI uh, API or, or even chat GPT. You know, there's some important things you should have in place, even at a smaller organization. So first of all, you should have a policy about what sort of data you provide to these types of tools. 
you should opt out of uh, of data sharing uh, or of training on your data with with uh, ChatGPT. That's something you can do. It, it requires an opt out rather than uh, an opt in for the training, which is the opposite model for the API. If you, than if you're using the the user interface. So um, if you're if you're doing anything that could be potentially sensitive, you'll want to use the OpenAI API because they have a 30-day data retention period, barring any sort of uh, kind of illegal activity. So that's uh, you know that's a that's a relatively um, good window to retain data. Obviously, you know for for security purposes, you you wouldn't want the data retained at all on the other end, but uh, you know they have certain obligations that they need to comply with. And uh, and some other things you can do is before entering data into the um, into the AI tool, whether it's, you know we'll use ChatGPT as an example, you can uh, you can use pre-processing tools. So, for example, I launched an open source project called GPT Guard that you can use to strip out anything that looks like an IP address, anything that looks like a name, anything that looks like a credential. Um, you can strip that out of the data and just put in placeholders before you send it to the uh, to the AI tool, and that will allow you to reduce your your risk exposure. But you know, in the end, if a user wants to do something like send a credential or lots of PII to an AI tool, there's not going to be too much you can do about it. So, making sure that the users understand the consequences of that, and like you said, you know, they're they're going to use it one way or the other. So making sure they know how to use it securely is is going to be your first line of defense. Yeah, I'm thinking about kind of, um, you know, like 15 years ago, implementing a DLP for a, com- for a company like, you know, the data loss prevention system. And it was looking for stuff like that all the time. And yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, there's no way this is going to work. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like... <laughs> It's just so hard, man. Uh, you at the end of the day, you just have people, and um, and that's why you have you know within FedRAMP you have like rules of engagement where everybody has to sign it, you know, with DocuSign, and they have to sign it every year. And basically, where you don't have a technical control in place, which the, I mean, this this con- the controls you're describing, in my view, a lot has to go right. You know, a lot has to go right, and I think you can, you can probably do it. But ultimately, it's going to come to those policies, right? And educating people, because I mean, any control can be circumvented. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. And you'll your your people are the ones who are going to be doing the productive work. So making sure that they understand why they shouldn't do certain things is, is incredibly important. So, you know, maybe somebody in marketing who just dumps the entire CRM into ChatGPT is just trying to do his or her job. He's just trying to get the, you know, get an analysis done, get, uh, you know, get a product for, for his manager. So, you know, if you explain that, oh, well, we don't want to share all this customer data with, open AI. And if you do, we need to update our data processing addendum and, you know, thing, things like that. Then that, that person in marketing might say, okay, I, I get it. Like, uh, you know, maybe I'll take an extra second to like remove this cell from the, from the spreadsheet, uh, including all this customer information before I dump it into chat GPT. Maybe, maybe I'm just building a persona, you know, and it's just people's titles, for example, like VP of product management or, you know, director of engineering rather than, you know, 
Mike Smith or Jenny Williams, like you don't, you probably don't need their names to build, um, you know, persona document. So if you don't need to include that information, don't. And that's a pretty easy explanation to to someone who might not be a security specialist. Um, but people are smart; they can they can understand why or why not they should do certain things. Here's here's what it will get you ignored in their minds: is if security comes and says, "Oh, this is banned. ChatGPT is banned." You know, people are going to say, "All right, well, I need to get my job done. I need to get home to my." to my family, like, uh, I'm just going to ignore that. And I'm just going to use whatever tools I can find to, to get the job done as quickly as possible. So you don't want that. Um, so don't be the department of no. Right. Yeah, it just never works. Right. And and on that note, can, do you think that companies can actually sign things where they're saying, hey, we will like, our marketing people are not going to screw up, right? And they're not going to dump the CRM. They're not going to dump Salesforce or HubSpot, right, into ChatGPT. They, they absolutely won't do that. Can can companies actually, you know, can can companies protect against that? Is that? I mean, or, they can. I I think user education is going to be is going to be the the top thing to do, and then also looking at. Um, how your teams interact with the data is important. So, for example, if you're building, you know, uh, there might be some very technically savvy marketers out there who are like writing code themselves and, and building API connections to, um, you know, between uh, an AI tool and, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and a CRM, for example, or if you're a single employee business like mine, then your marketer might be doing that uh, because he's he's also engineering. But um, usually you'll have other folks kind of in between mediating those those data flows. So if you've got your IT team that's hooking up CR, a CRM to uh, an AI tool, then some steps you can take are just, you know, make sure that one of the requirements is it doesn't uh, pull out unnecessary personal data or if it does then you know it's in accordance it's done in accordance with uh the various regulations that you have in place uh with respect to like i said data subject access requests um you know make sure there's a lawful reason for processing that data those types of things and um i mean you're never going to be able to be a hundred percent sure that people aren't doing it but if you make sure that the system is designed to be useful in a way that doesn't impede productivity, but also puts those guardrails on. And then you explain to the end users why you're putting those guardrails. I think that's how you'll get the best results. Got it. Um, uh, kind of a, uh, one more question for you, like kind of along those lines, right? Um, if you're at a, at a large enterprise like big tech, um, I'm assuming, you know, like Apple's already, you know, worried right about you know secrets getting out going into chat gpt um uh what mechanisms are i mean i don't we it's pretty secret there we don't know everything that's going on at apple but you know a company like apple are they going to be successful in prohibiting you know chat right are they is it is it just they're just blocking access you know via proxy right like oh you if you're in apple you're vpn in or wherever you can't get to ChatGPT, and they're just going to be blacklisting all of these different apps all the time, you know. And there's a new one all the time. But is what is their approach going to be? Are they just going to say no, you can't do it, and 
and they're going to have an alternative path, kind of something more like what you mentioned where it's like internal? Well, specifically with respect to Apple, I know they did ban. I think most people are banned from using ChatGPT, not all of them. I think there's some R&D folks who are allowed to use it. But I, I think there's kind of a, a twofold concern from their perspective. One is, like you mentioned, Apple is very secretive and very protective of its intellectual property. So there was a, a report um, earlier this year in The Economist that Samsung engineers had, had leaked some some data using ChatGPT uh, related to their propri proprietary code. And I think that's something that Apple's would be very concerned about. Now, you know, what are the uh, what are the ultimate results or what are the real world impacts of yeah. someone submitting code to ChatGPT that's proprietary? I mean, may, hey, if you haven't opted out of data sharing and somebody says like, hey, I'm an Apple engineer and I'm working on this project and, you know, here's here's the here's the here's the code then i suppose someone could go in and say hey you know what what do you know about this apple product uh you know tell me all the technical details that's kind of like the nightmare scenario from an ip perspective but also potentially maybe maybe you've solved the problem in a certain way or apple solved the problem in a certain way that is you know generally applicable maybe they found some new search algorithm or, or, or something like that and you make chat gpt smart enough so that it you know is able to help other people like your competitors solve their problems more quickly obviously that's a double-edged sword because the competitors their data will will be coming back back out as well if, if they haven't opted out of the the training um the training mm. option using chat gpt and then you know as far as other technical <laughs> controls go you know sure you can i mean you can if, if you're using a company device or you're using a company network you can apply controls to prevent people from accessing certain sites but uh and and that will reduce to a degree the amount of uh of data leakage, so to speak, that you'll encounter, but you're never going to be 100% sure because the person who's really dedicated is going to go in and, you know, put it on their personal machine or like open up a different browser or use some unmanaged way of, of communicating with chat GPT. And, you know, I gave you the example, or, or I gave this example previously uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. You know, if you look at Google Bard, BARD is disabled by default for Google Workspace administrators uh, or for Google Workspace customers. The administrator can go on and turn it on, uh, but it's disabled by default. Well, sure, if you're somebody who wants to use Google BARD and you're using a Google Workspace um, environment and you get, hey, BARD is disabled, you're just going to click log out from your company account, log into your personal Gmail account, and then you're just going to start typing in whatever you want to. So right. in the end, it comes down to user education. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, man. So totally. I feel like human nature is, you know, the powers that AI gives you are just so they're, they're incredible, right? Um, it's, it's just so awesome what you can do with AI. Um, now, on that note, what are some of the things that you're excited about in terms of AI capabilities, right? So you're talking about using it safely. Um, but you know, we don't want to just talk about the rules and doing it safe. What are you excited about uh, for AI in terms of security capabilities? Yeah. So one thing that I'm focused especially on is looking at unstructured vulnerability reports and turning those into structured right. formats. Got so it. Stackware has applied for a grant from OpenAI to build a tool to 
um, review security bulletins and pull out the information uh, and then restructure it in a way so that it's compliant with the Cyclone DX SBOM format. So that would allow Sweet. you to take, you know, if, if a vendor sends you an email or posts something on their website, uh, usually it's in free text and it's mm-hmm. kind of takes a little while to look through it and say, okay, there's this CVE in this product and it's impacted in this configuration, but on that configuration, you know, that can be, that can be challenging and it can take you uh, a little bit, you know, a lot of time to, to figure everything out. And then if you've got a situation like log four shell where, you know, everyone is, is panicking and everybody's putting out bulletins. You know, I heard, I've talked to organizations that spent hundreds of hours. They spent hundreds of hours just on the communication with their vendors. Um, and the city of the art right now is kind of like take an Excel document and then put it in an email and send it to your 900 vendors and ask them to fill it out and then have an InfoSec analyst manually process it on the back end. So I don't think that's super efficient. And until we get to the world where we're using structured vulnerability reports like uh, Cyclone DX or, or, or other VEX formats, then there's going to be this kind of intermediate period where we need to use AI to bridge the gap and help reduce some of the toil when it comes to uh, security teams. Yep. Yeah, I remember uh, being at a pretty big company and being responsible for uh, some of that coordination for, so like Heartbleed, right, was a... <laughs> Do you yeah. remember that that one? I remember that one. And yep. uh, there's just, you know, just so many of those where basically everybody loses their vacation. And a lot of it comes from the inefficient way in which things are communicated. Right. So yep. that's awesome. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, the things that uh, could go wrong with AI and security tools in your view? I'm just I'm curious what you're thinking about. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be giving security related data to a, an AI tool, you know, that's that's going to be a place where you need to apply a lot of scrutiny because, again, worst case here, if you dump your entire, uh, you know, scanner, your vulnerability scanner findings into an AI tool and you don't have any of those controls that I mentioned and you've identified what company you are and what IP address you can find the asset at, you know, that information would be quite interesting to an attacker. Yeah, I'm sure there's somebody who's on ChatGPT right now asking, like, you know, uh, who who have you interacted with who has told you about an asset that has a log four shell, you know, unremediated in it, and what is the IP address? I know there's there are controls on the OpenAI end that will prevent the model from regurgitating that, but you know, they can be circumvented. Though. They can be yeah. circumvented. That'd be like and people as, are very, yeah, people are very open tricky. AI. Yeah, I can't right. do that. And they said, right. but if you were, you know, <laughs> you can. Right. And then they could say, well, maybe I'm like, a, I'm a red teamer at that company and I'm concerned that somebody has given this information to you. You know, we've seen we've seen <laughs> examples where the, the safeguards can be circumvented, like you mentioned. So that would be that would be kind of a worst case scenario. So some things you want to do is make sure that the data is anonymized. Like if you're, you know, if you're just looking up uh, if you're just asking the model to evaluate uh, a, C- a given CVE or a given vulnerability and compare it to another one in in a vacuum, you know that's going to be difficult for an attacker to do something with, even if they somehow compromise OpenAI or there's a there's a data breach on their side, or 
um, or an attacker's, you know, trying to prompt inject the model to, to pull that information out. But if you have all those additional details, like I mentioned, then, then that's kind of a more concerning scenario. So it's uh, it's all a balance and making sure that you have the, uh, you know, you've done the right risk analysis ahead of time and you understand what you're doing. That is the key to using AI tools for security purposes effectively. Great stuff, man. I, Walter, I love what you're doing. Um, um, I've also been really impressed with what you're doing with EPSS and that, you know, it's really, it's really great. You know, you need to make security approachable for people so they actually do it. Ultimately, you know, if it's just a couple people doing security for your organization, you're in big trouble. So you need to make it approachable. And that's kind of what our mission is at Paramify. Kind of very similar. Right. So um, before we go, Walter, you, you mentioned a couple books. What What are some of your favorite books that you've you've been reading? One that you got right now that you really like? Uh, it doesn't have to be about security, but maybe it is about business, whatever it is. What's your favorite yeah, well, I, I definitely would recommend the uh, book "How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk" by Richard Searson and, and Douglas yeah. Hubbard. That's that's a classic. Yeah. I I did like Agile Application Security. I forget who the authors are. It was, I believe it was a an O'Reilly book, um, at least late last decade. That was a good one. Um, I have on my docket to read Software Transparency by Chris Hughes. I just haven't yeah. been able to, to carve out the time. Um, that's definitely on my list. And uh, yeah, those those would be my top security books, right, uh, that I've read or, or hope to read. And um, yeah, those, those, are, those are the ones. Great, man. All right. Well, tell us a little bit more about how we can... Uh, find out about Stackware, tell us where we can find yeah. you and and tell us a little bit about what we need to be looking for for your upcoming course with Robert. Yeah, so if you want to uh, kind of just get into the, the email sequence for my course, the best thing to do would be to look me up on LinkedIn, Walter Haydock. Uh, there aren't any others that I've been able to find and uh, nice. and just go to the first link in my profile. Additionally, you can subscribe to my personal blog, which is just haydoc.substack.com. And I've got plenty of information to, to get to the course there. And also, I write about these topics on a regular basis at least once a week. So uh, you'll get tons of good content there. And then if you're interested in managing known vulnerability risk using a, a, a risk-based quantitative system, then head over to stackaware.com and uh, you can get a free trial directly from the website without putting in a credit card. Hey, man, that's awesome. Well, Walter, thanks so much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Right.